0: Okay, welcome to our wednesday night zoom presentation in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy ghost amen come holy ghost fill the hearts of thy faithful and kindle in them the fire of thy love send forth thy spirit and they shall be created and thou shalt renew the face of the earth let us pray O god who instruct the hearts of the faithful by the light of the holy ghost grant us in the same spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord, Amen. Most Sacred Heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. Immaculate Heart of Mary, pray for us. Good Saint Joseph, pray for us. In the name of the Father and of His Son and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. So we continue our topic of Christ the King in preparation for the great solemnity of Christ's kingship on the last Sunday of October. In the Old Testament, the first book of Kings to be exact, there is an important scene recounted. The Hebrews approach the Holy Prophet and Judge Samuel, and they demand changes. It seems that Samuel's sons did not rule well and had disgraced the office of judge over God's people. And so the Jews wanted A whole new government, a new organized way of ruling the people, a new order, unlike the old order that dismissed the idea of judges and embraced rather government by human kings. In short, the Jews wanted to be ruled just like the pagan unbelievers that surrounded them. They wanted to be like everybody else. To this point, The government of Israel had been unique and very different from other nations. It was a theocracy of sorts, a government of God, a theocracy in which God himself immediately ruled the people by the laws which he had made and by human judges extraordinarily raised up by God himself as divine instruments to free Israel from their enemies. Samson, for example, was a judge raised up by God to free the Israelites from the Philistines. Now, the desire of the Jews was to reject this type of government, a theocracy, was not only a rejection of the divine plan, but also a rejection of the divine author of this plan. This request of the Jews showed great disrespect towards Samuel and ingratitude towards God, who had made the Jews different from all other nations and had taken the government upon himself and appointed the judges as his representatives, his lieutenants. The foolish Israelites, they wished to throw off the sweet yoke of the old order, and to be ruled by a new order of human kings, just like the pagan infidels. The good Lord was going to permit the Jews to make this terrible choice, but he first asked Samuel to explain just how burdensome and difficult it would be for the Jews to live under this new order of human kings. Perhaps the Israelites would rethink their decision once they realized that human kings would take their sons and make them fight in wars. The same human kings would also take their daughters and make them into servant girls, cooks for the royal court, and even a wife or a concubine. And yes, these kings would not only take a percentage of your income, your flocks, and your produce, but these kings might even take your whole fields, your vineyards, and even your ancestral land, as did the evil King Ahab. And though the Jews might cry out in protest against these abuses, quote, the Lord will not hear you in that day, the Bible states, because you desired unto yourselves a king, unquote. Are you really sure then that you want this new order? This new system. The sacred scriptures record what happened next. Quote, but the people would not hear the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, let us have a king to rule over us, and we also will be like all the nations. Unquote. Now let us go forward in time, many centuries forward, even millennia. A similar situation arose in Christian nations, where a group of revolutionary men clamored for a new world order, a new way of organizing and governing society. Enough, they said, of this Christendom. Let us do away with the Christian order, the Christian organization of things, the idea of a Christian state, that confesses Christ as Lord or Christ is recognized as king and as one church is protected and favored is old-fashioned, part of a bygone era that can no longer fit into this modern age. We need a liberal government that separates, divorces church and state, that divides the material from the spiritual, that divorces the body politic from the soul, Of religion. We want a purely secular state and society that recognizes no religious body or church nor any higher authority than itself. We long for a state where the will of the people trumps the will of God. We want to put morality up to a vote as opposed to receiving the moral truths from Mount Sinai. We want to be free of any moral restraint or set of commandments. We wish to crown liberty, freedom, and license as our goddesses, and to uncrown the Son of God. In short, the Christian order of things in Europe, the idea of Christendom and the social reign of Christ the King, which dated back to Constantine's Edict of Milan in 313 AD. This system, the revolutionaries told us, must be done away with. Give us Barabbas. Give us liberal republics that reject the social reign of Christ the King, for we have no king but Caesar. But since the coming of Christ, God's will for guiding and ruling humanity has been quite clear. If man is going to have an orderly return to the God who made him to enjoy that end which is perfect happiness in heaven, then human society ought to acknowledge Christ the King and his Catholic Church as the one and only means to this orderly return to God. Human governments should assist man in obtaining this ultimate end, the supernatural goal of beatitude, and never should a state act as a hindrance to this end. But this plan of God is not only meant to ensure eternal happiness above, but also a certain temporal, worldly happiness here below. Imperfect, but still a happiness. And if man is going to have at least some happiness in this world, please God, then he must have that justice and peace, which can only be found in Christ, who is the king of justice and peace. Saint Augustine, the great, Church Father and Doctor of Grace once had this to say. He said, where there is no justice, there is no state. But true justice, St. Augustine argued, is not to be found except in that state, in that commonwealth whose founder and ruler is Jesus Christ, Unquote. Justice is not found except in that state that commonwealth whose founder and ruler is jesus christ unquote again saint augustine the only just and good state then is the christian state the christian town the christian city the christian nation in such a state the eternal law the holy gospels of christ and the natural law become the guiding stars and directing principles that assist lawmakers, judges, and executives in writing legislation, interpreting, and applying and enforcing laws in the area of executing those laws. That's what the executive does. With the truths of divine revelation allowed to permeate society, not only the government, but also the arts, economics, Hospitals, medicine, the scientific field, the military, the schools, the courtroom, you name the field, everything is more elevated and perfected when the gospel of Christ permeates it. And this is why Pope St. Pius X, the great enemy of modernism, insisted the following, quote, The city cannot be built otherwise than as God has built it. Society cannot be set up unless the church lays the foundations and supervises the work. St. Pius X then ends by saying, No, civilization is not something to be found, nor is the new city to be built upon hazy notions. It has been in existence and still is. It is the Christian civilization. It is the Catholic city, unquote. But despite all the glories of Christendom, the Christian ordering of society, and the wonders connected with Christian civilization, the highest levels of civilization in human history, revolutionary men of the modern age still chose a new world order that uncrowned Christ the King and secularized, purely secular humanism became part of human society. These revolutionaries embraced an error known as laicism or secularism, the ideology, which attempted to organize society without any reference to God. Priests stay out of public business These men, revolutionaries, instituted a novus ordo seclorum, a new order of the ages that brought a certain ungodliness to every aspect of society. And like the Jews of old, they brought down a curse upon themselves, The Christian rulers back in the Middle Ages may have imposed small excise taxes on the sale of some items, but now mammoth and monolithic liberal governments of the modern age impose confiscatory tax rates on your income, your property, and your transactions. In centuries past, war was largely limited in scope, with noblemen engaging in most of the battles and women, children, and other non-combatants were seen as off-limits. But with the advent of the new order of the godless state, we had the notion of total war with unlimited targets, weapons of mass destruction, genocides, and unconditional surrenders. During the time of Christendom, truth was promoted an error was either condemned or perceived as an evil, That would only be tolerated. Abortion was an abominable crime. Sodomy was a sin that cried to heaven for vengeance. Usury, profiteering from loaning people in need, was against the law. Pornography was illegal. Immoral and false literature was censored. Calumny and libel were punishable under the law. No fault divorce was unheard of. And heresy was actually seen as a capital offense because heresy leads souls to hell. But with the coming of the new world order of liberal republics, the rejection of Christendom, truth and error, truth and error are put on equal footing. And a tyranny of moral relativism reigns over us. And without Christian truth to guide us, we have seen the rise of the most inhuman and ungodly ideologies and various destructive isms. 20th century case in point, destructive ideologies where the state is all powerful. Acting like modern day, like a modern day Samuel, Pope Pius XI of Holy Memory, condemned the destructive idea of a purely secular and godless society. In his papal encyclical regarding Christ the King, called Quas Primas, published on December 11, 1925, Pius XI denounced the great modern heresy of laicism or secularism, the ideology. The Pope said that this error refused to recognize the rights of God and his Christ over persons, peoples, and governments and organized the lives of individuals, families, and society itself as though God did not exist. So the idea of laicism, get the supernatural out, get the priestly class out of society, get the church away from being officially recognized. But such an error would lead to the apostasy of the masses and the ruination of what was left of Christendom because the heresy of laicism is a complete denial of Christ's social reign as king over all societies. In place of the love of God and love of one's neighbor, laicism and secularism substitutes pride and egotism. Finally, this era begets jealousy between individuals, hatred between classes, and rivalries between nations. Pope Pius XI warned that there will be no improvement in this situation unless there was a return to the order, the Christian order, willed by God. The Pope explained, quote, that the manifold evils in the world today, all these evils we see, are due to the fact that the majority of men have thrust Jesus Christ and his holy law out of their lives. That our Lord and his holy law have No place either in private life or in politics. And as long as individuals and states refuse to submit to the rule of the Savior, there will be no hope of lasting peace among nations. And then he ends with what became his motto. Men must look for the peace of Christ in the kingdom of Christ. As a final note in this sort of introduction for our presentation, I went to Rome, Italy, back in July of 2013, and I saw the great St. Peter's Basilica, including the tomb of Pope Pius XI, the one who wrote Quas Primas in 1925, the encyclical on Christ's kingship. And note, 1925. Why that date? Because it was an encyclical based upon the anniversary of the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. So Quas Primus, the encyclical on Christ's kingship, is on the 1600th anniversary of Council of Nicaea, where Christ's divinity, that he was consubstantial, with the Heavenly Father, one and identically the same God as his Father and the Holy Ghost, that that was defined. Christ is king over all creation because that sacred humanity of his is united to the second person of the Holy Trinity. By nature, he is to be recognized as Lord and God and King, but also because he has purchased us at a price, also shedding his blood for the entire human race. So he is king by nature. He's God himself, God in the flesh, but he's also king because he purchased us at the price of his blood. I saw that tomb of Pius XI, again, the one who wrote Quas Primas, the encyclical on the social Kingship of Christ, written in 1925. I saw his tomb, and the inscription above his grave reads the following, Pax Christi in Regno Christi, the peace of Christ in the reign, the kingship of Christ. You want peace? You got to have the Prince of Peace acknowledged by all. Modern man still lives under the curse of rejecting the Christian order of things. When modern man rejected Christendom, Christendom that was basically in place from the year 13, excuse me, 313 A.D., Constantine's Edict of Milan, all the way up really until the French Revolution and even until World War I. 1,500 plus years of Christendom. But modern man rejected that Christian order of things. And we have reaped the most bitter fruits from the bad tree planted by revolutionary men who embraced laicism and secularism that made society godless. But there will be And Father and I preach about this all the time. For those who have been coming to our parish um, or perhaps some of our missions in the past, we preach about this all the time. There will be one day a restoration of Christendom. The good Lord in his great mercy will hear the prayers of those who cry out, How long, O Lord? Many saintly men have prophesied a great restoration to come. I will end with citing just a few of these holy saints who have prophesied of the return of Christendom. Saint Saint Caesar of Arles, quote, after great miseries and trial, a prince exiled in his youth shall recover the crown of lilies. He will assist a holy pope in reforming the entire world," unquote. St. Francis Paulo, quote, a great leader of the holy militia, wearing crosses on their breasts, will kill all of God's enemies and extirpate all heresies. There shall be one flock and one shepherd. And finally, and this is a well-known quotation about the coming restoration, The Venerable Holzhäuser, quote, there will arise a valiant monarch anointed by God who will rule supreme in temporal matters while the Pope rules supreme in spiritual matters. Venerable Holzhäuser continues, after a time of great upheaval and irreligion, we're living it, All nations will adore God according to Catholic teaching. Well that is extraordinary. Those are granted what we call what we call conditional prophecies. They're not absolute prophecies. Absolute prophecies must come to pass. There is no option. Absolute prophecies, Christ will come again. There will be the rise of the Antichrist. The, uh, the, the heavens and the earth, the present heavens and earth will be consumed in flames and renewed. These are absolute prophecies. You can't, can't stop. Conditional prophecies may or may not happen, all depending. But there is a lot of conditional prophecies regarding an age of peace to come. It will last for a certain period. Our Lady... Fatima sort of promised it, an age of peace, a certain age of peace, she said. There's also many other saints that have spoken about it. Lady of La Salette, in one of her messages, spoke about that certain time of peace, uh, which it suggests that might last for a generation, perhaps 25 years. But certainly a wonderful return of the Christian order of things. This will not be perfection. This is not some sort of millennialism. Please don't accuse me of that. It's not some sort of, you know, Christ reigning on earth visibly for a thousand years. That's not what this is. This is a flourishing of the Catholic faith once again. And it's something that I think that we could use today, that sort of assurance given to us. So last time we were looking at a particular document, um, which I do want to um, look at. Um, It is a document on, uh, let's see here. Let's see. I'm going to share it on the screen with you. So if you remember, We were looking at a document, which I forgot to send out. I apologize for that. I will remember to send it out, hopefully, right after this talk. I'll send it out through Jessica, and she can send it out to people. Uh, It's a document called Christendom and Revolution. You have these sort of two opposing forces, right? you got the city of God, which loves God so much that there is a hatred Of the disordered love of self. But there's also the city of man, which loves man so much that it leads to the hatred of God. You got two standards, right? The standard of Christ the King, his banner that we march behind, is also the standard, the banner of Satan, that some also march behind, whether wittingly or, or knowingly or unwittingly. So, there's a few things that we learned, okay? Um, We learned about Christendom. Christendom is not the church. Christendom, rather, is the temporal society that is permeated by the Gospels. Let me read to you again. Again, this is repeating from last week. Christendom, we hear it. It's not just a college in Virginia, okay? Christendom is an actual order of things, a Christian way of organizing society in the temporal passing realm, in the realm of government, in the realm of this passing world. So if you can see this little section right here, we'll read that again. Christendom is, quote, a social fabric in which religion penetrates down to the last corners of temporal life. Temporal is temporary. It's a passing world. But the customs, the uses, the games, the work, everything is penetrated by religion, a civilization in which the temporal is unceasingly infused by the eternal. I mean, just... In a basic way. If you've ever been over to Europe, I mean you go to the city squares, even to this day in a very secularized Europe, you go to the city squares, you go to various, you know, uh, you know, villages, you know, there's always a shrine. There's always some image of, of, of one of the saints. They still have processions. It's part of their culture, even to this day. So it's permeating the gospel. Religion is permeating all of society. And then, of course, we, again, went over some of this, too. Christendom sees life on earth as a journey towards the everlasting, okay? Remember, Christendom is not religion. It's not, I shouldn't say, it's not the church, I should say. Christianity, or rather Christendom, is the temporal society in which we live and how it's penetrated by religion and the gospel. So Christendom sees life on earth as a journey towards life everlasting. We know that we're on this earth for a certain amount of time. And we live this on this earth, and we, you know, we, we do our job here on earth. We have our families, we have our work, we have our duties. We know that it's a passing world, but we want to do whatever we can to make it a little bit better, relieve a little bit more suffering. But Christendom focuses on the fact that we're on a journey, we're pilgrims towards a final goal of heaven above. The teachings of the faith are directly, are the directing principle of civilization, directive of minds, morals, institutions, and all the activities of men. Sciences, are the work of human reason that is true, but they are useful to admire the workings of God and his creation. You know, in those days, there was a hierarchy of bodies of knowledge, a hierarchy of sciences. They all had their particular jurisdiction. Biology took care of certain things, anatomy took care of certain things, physics took care of certain things, philosophy, covered certain things, and of course theology, the highest of all the bodies of knowledge had its thing, its object, its its research, what it, what it researched. But there's a hierarchy. So there was always an acknowledgement that when you're doing anatomy or when you're doing biology or when you're doing economics, you're always referencing towards the godly religion itself. Literature and arts, You know, obviously, their inspiration is rooted in human intelligence, but it's also human intelligence and sensibility penetrated by faith and animated by love of God and neighbor. So the influence of religion is always there. The state, as a sovereign power, is not directly subordinated to the church, but the exercise of its temporal task is illuminated by the teachings of the church. I may have mentioned this last week just to repeat. Remember, this is Catholic views of how society should be. There is what we call a diarchy. There are two entities that receive authority from God, the church and the state. They receive this authority directly from God. Not as if some Christian king received his authority from the Pope. No, he received it from God. Same thing with a father and a family. Didn't receive his authority to rule his family from the Pope, but rather from God. So the state takes care of temporal matters. And the church takes care of eternal matters. That's sort of their field of expertise. But even though the state is an autonomous sort of thing, receiving its authority from God, and not directly subordinated to the church, it is still illuminated by the teachings of the church. And there are some cases in which we might have what's called a mixed matter. Let me explain. The church takes care of eternal matters. The state takes care of temporal passing matters of this world. Got to respect the rights of both. But on some matters, there's mixed sort of mixed is a mixture. I'll give an example, marriage. The church is interested in marriage because it's an institution that God gave to Adam and Eve in the beginning. And of course, our dearest Lord, when he came as man, he, for two baptized people, sacramentalized the marriage vocation. So he took what was natural and good, and he gave a sacrament that gives grace to help people live marriage so the church is extremely concerned and interested in marriage and she teaches what marriage is and so the state is also concerned about marriages at least at one time it was it realized that boy if we can have good families the state is increased in terms of its human capital and this is a great source of uh uh talent and goodness that the state has because it has all these good families. But what if you have a state that starts teaching that marriage isn't what we always were told it was, that marriage could be anything you want it to be. The church does have the right to step in and make a correction to the state and actually censor, penalize, correct publicly, and even other sorts of sanctions. And that's important. So there's this indirect power, which we'll talk about, of the church over the state. The church is not saying that we're going to take care of temporal matters from now on. No. Church takes care of eternal matters, getting to heaven, grace, supernatural life. But she will intervene when there has been a violation of the moral law by one of the rulers or by the legislature or by supreme court or whatever okay some other things here um let's go on to revolution okay so again this name of this article which again i hope to send out to you right after this talk at least send it to jessica the name of the article is christendom and revolution christendom Is the Christian order of things within temporal society where the gospel and religion penetrates and permeates every aspect of society, elevating it as a result, civilizing us as a result. But then you got the other side, you got revolution, right? What is revolution? Capital R revolution. Revolution. Not just, you know, the French Revolution or the Bolshevik Revolution, what is revolution capital R in general? What is it? In common use, the term revolution is an emphatic synonym for fundamental change, a major, sudden, and hence typically violent alteration in government and related associations and structures. This is sort of the dictionary definition of revolution. A fundamental change, a major sudden and oftentimes violent, especially in Catholic countries. When you have, notice where the revolutions have been most bloody and violent. It's been in countries that have had strong Christian identity, Christian order and things. So you have France, very bloody revolution. You just can't peacefully overthrow the Christian order of things. Blood must be shed, and that's what happened in France. It happened in Mexico, the Mexican Revolution back in 1917. You had a Christian society where you had sort of the remnants of Christendom, uh, and as a result, you had the bloody Mexican Revolution that rose up, the Freemasons and Socialists rising up to overthrow that, and it was a lot of blood. And then, of course, you have even in Russia, although it wasn't a uh, a true, you know, half a country, uh, you still had a certain Christian order of things in Russia. So the Bolshevik Revolution was very bloody as well. So that's revolution. but i think it's more than that you know it's not just you know a fundamental sort of upheaval and oftentimes violent alteration within the order of things like the world turned upside down you know there's something beyond that it has to do ultimately with the two cities i mentioned before city of god versus city of man okay city of man is revolutionary city of god the Christian order of things within society. That's what God wills. And, you know, has anybody ever, like, thought about that for a bit? What does God want, you know? Um, You know, I think I mentioned this past Sunday, who are we voting for? We're voting for Christ the King. He's our candidate. He is the individual that we are looking to um, support his cause, his platform. And that's our mindset. So let's take a look at revolution real quick here. I am not what men, this is the person, and I might've done this last week, I apologize if I did, if I'm repeating myself. This is the personification of revolution. If you were to take revolution and give it a, a personality, this is what it would say. I'm not what men believe. Many talk about me, but they know me little. I am not carbonarism, which I believe was sort of the Italian revolutionary sort of movement. I'm not the street riots, or the change of the monarchy for a republic, or the substitution of one dynasty for another, or the temporary perturbation of the public order. I am not the howls of the Jacobins in the French Revolution, or the fury of the mountain, again, part of the French Revolution or the fight in the barricades, or the pillage and arson, or the agrarian laws, or the guillotine and the massacres. I'm not Marat, this sort of public relations media guru with the French Revolution. I'm not Robespierre. I'm not all of these other revolutionaries, Babouf, Mazzini, Kossuth, Hitler, Stalin. These men are my children, but they are not me those actions are my works but they are not me these men and their and those actions are passing events while i am a permanent state what is revolution i am the hatred of any order that has not established that has not been established by man himself and in which he is not king and god at the same time this is revolution capital r I am the proclamation of the rights of man without any regard to the rights of God. I am God enthroned and man put in his place. For that reason, my name is revolution, that is reverse. Man is enthroned as king and God is uncrowned and dethroned, put downwards from his throne. That's revolution with a capital R. So when we look at what's happening in our city streets, you know, you know, whether it's in Portland or uh, Seattle or perhaps, you know, even Louisville of recent, you know, days and weeks, you know, you understand that, you know, there's, there's a revolutionary spirit in the air tearing down statues, right? We saw that earlier. There's a real, now that is not, you know, tearing down statues is not necessarily the revolution. It is just a child of the revolution. Ultimately, revolutionaries want man enthroned as God. That's what a revolutionary ultimately wants. So going down some, some, uh, some further about, again, learning more about this revolution that goes against Christ the King and Christendom. Revolution itself is a faith, this author writes. It is faith in the inevitable progress of mankind towards a new order, a better world. Give us a liberal republic. We don't want this Christian order of things to be achieved solely by human effort without the intervention of God. It is faith in the possibility of realizing here on earth by natural means what cannot be realized except in eternity by supernatural means. Let us build a city of man. Let us build a worker's paradise. Let us build a Tower of Babel that will help us reach the heights without God being involved. You know, the Tower of Babel, just to give you a quick sort of reminder what it was, remember the Tower of Babel was built by a guy named Nimrod, right? We about him. Nimrod. Nimrod was a king. He was also the sort of father of hunters and archers. And of course, they built that big tower to pierce the heavens, to show the glory of man. And also, many people say that it was built in order to get up high so that when, if God were ever to send another flood, which he promised not to do, but Nimrod thought, well, if God sends a flood, I'm going to Build a building so high that I can climb above the waters and not drown. This is the revolutionary mindset. Revolution is a mystery of iniquity. Satan is the father of all rebellions, all revolutionaries. He is the ultimate sort of child of revolutionary thought non servion. I will not serve. I will not accept the order of things that God has established where Christ the King, Christ's sacred humanity, and the mother that gave him birth are seated on thrones above Lucifer. I will not accept that, non serviam. The revolution begun in heaven by Lucifer is now here below. The essence of revolution, to continue this line of thought, is satanic, obviously non-servio. Its goal is the destruction of the kingdom of God on earth. So I think whenever we see things happen, remember we were told in this article to look at things with Catholic lenses. Look at history. Look at even modern-day events with Catholic eyesight. Something's going on here, and we should see it in a Catholic way. So, I mean, what is ultimately going on? It is the uprising of the city of man against the city of God. Blessed Pius IX has said it clearly, quote, The revolution, and of course he dealt with the revolution in Italy, right? Papal states were taken away unjustly, illegitimately, from, well, the Pope. Papal, right? The Pope got those territories taken away. The revolution is inspired by Satan himself. Its goal is the destruction of the building of Christianity to reconstruct upon its ruins a social order of paganism. It's like Julian the Apostate, if you remember him, one of Constantine's relatives. I think maybe his nephew or I forget exactly the relationship. But, of course, he was a baptized Christian. And uh, when he became emperor, sort of almost as if Satan was allowed to sort of maneuver it so that he would become emperor, he immediately sought to destroy the Christian order of things. He rebuilt pagan temples, and he tore down Catholic churches, right? He tried to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, even. So you can see these revolutionary figures. The destruction of the building of Christianity to reconstruct upon its ruins the social order of paganism. This is a cry of the revolution, quote, Catholicism must fall. It is not a question of refuting papism, but of extirpating it, not only to extirpate it, but to dishonor it, not only to dishonor it, but to smother it in the muck. See, to take a look at this with with Catholic eyes, the goal, I mean, okay, you know, you know the the goal of a revolution maybe initially was to um you know maybe refute some catholic truth try to maybe sort of argue against it but their ultimate goal is not coexistence it's destruction i mean you know you look in the streets today you know again um you know, you know, you know, Christopher Columbus is one of the statues being torn down by the revolutionaries in our streets, right? Um, Serra Saint Serra who was really, in a sense, the father of California, <laughs> in terms of founding all of those Catholic missions. Um, you look at California and what its foundation, in many ways, was in terms of its founding. I mean, Sacramento, the capital, named after the blessed sacrament. Sacramento. Now, Los Angeles, right? The city of the angels, right? Santa Barbara. St. Barbara, one of the holy helpers. Um, San Francisco, St. Francis, whose feast day was recent. I mean, uh, you, you know, it's the destruction of Christianity. That's, is, that is what is sought. You can see this always in the maneuvers of revolutionaries. So when revolutionaries first pop up, there's a reaction against them. And so they'll sort of say, well, listen, we should tolerate each other, right? Let's have tolerance as if tolerance is a virtue. It's not a virtue. Tolerance is not a virtue, okay? Tolerance is a temporary state in which you tolerate an evil, but it's not lasting. Should it be lasting for the cat? Catholicism, by its very nature, is intolerant. Christ and Baal cannot coexist. Christ and Lucifer don't coexist. They don't. Revolution and Christianity do not coexist. All right, let's go down a little bit further. Um, Stages of the growing revolution. So let's take a look at some of the growth of revolution over the centuries. And how is sort of the stages that are taken to go from the beginnings of revolution to full blown revolution. So, first, to get the first stage of revolution, look at this maybe within a particular, like a typical society. First, the minds and hearts of men were detached from the guidance of the church. So, you got to separate the church from sort of influence within education, within society. Within government, you got to eliminate that, detach the church from being a guide. Second, Catholic states were undermined. You got to go after those states which are confessional states, states that confess Christ as Lord and his kingdom as the Catholic Church. Got to get rid of that. You want a purely secularized state, godless, in other words, a free, state that does not confess any truth of religion. Third stage of revolution. The attack against the heart of the church came when Catholic kingdoms, ramparts of the church had been overwhelmed. So you see that, so the revolutions that happened in France, this is the eldest daughter of the church. All of a sudden, she's no longer an assistant to help the church, Spain. You might see revolutions happen in Spain, the Spanish Civil War, rising up of various revolutionary men. Spain was always considered the great protector of the church in many ways. Gotta overthrow that. First, she was attacked externally, this is the church, in her temporal sovereignty to leave her at the whim of political powers hostile to her. So her influence in the temporal realm was cut off, and therefore political powers evermore rose up against her, the church. This brought her back to her beginnings, right? Suffering the persecutions and interferences of civil power. Know, and by the way, you know, some people want to go back to the way it was, you know, before the church, you know, was recognized as the legal sort of religion of the empire, or whatever the case may be. Go back to the early days of Nero Caligula Commodus. Are you kidding me? <laughs> or church walked by faith alone? No, it's meant to be. God has willed this, that society recognize the church and make it a bit easier for men to stay in the state of grace, stay away from mortal sin, and maybe get to heaven. Once the church was under siege by a hostile world, external enemies going after her, pressure was brought upon her through her elite, the clergy. This is the work of modernism, right? So all of a sudden, from all these external enemies pressing against the church, you have an interior enemy, the beginnings of modernism. So we'll sort of end with this notion today, before we take questions, Um, this is something that we have to learn, because we're we're really taught as sort of people in a modern sort of world that is religiously indifferent. We're really taught that, you know, we got to compromise. We got to tolerate things the way they are. Uh, And actually, you know, this is a good thing. Um, You know, all this sort of diversity, right? You cannot compromise with the revolution, never. You might tolerate certain things for a while, but that is a temporary policy. So I'm going to end with that and end this article by looking at that. This This author writes, no compromise is possible with the revolution. You can't have a compromise between Christ and Baal. Christ and Lucifer, just can't coexist. Catholic truth truth is by nature intolerant. Can't we just all get along? No. You can show love to your neighbor even if they're an error. I don't doubt that. But you don't want that error to spread. Catholic truth is by nature intolerant. I mean, you know, this is part of the problem with the United States today. In terms of our dealing with matters, people today basically put all religions on the same level. There's indifferentism, morally speaking, as well. But for us, there is no truth outside of Christ. And therefore, we preach that truth. And we're not to compromise. The revolution is anti Christian. It has no notion of truth or common good. Therefore, habitually, it cannot or does not procure either truth or good. And anything true or good in it is merely accidental. Many times Catholics have fallen into the delusion of presuming the goodwill of the adversary. Objectively, such goodwill does not exist although the adversary may be subjectively seer and, con- and kind. We are counter-revolutionaries. This is how we end. So the church ultimately is intolerant of error. Might tolerate it for a while, but it's a temporary policy. We are to be counter-revolutionaries. We're not to compromise with the revolution. We're not become revolutionary ourselves. We're to be counter-revolutionary. If the world is to be converted, Christendom must be rebuilt. Ah, the promise of the great secular leader that will come one day, perhaps. uh, You know, that will work with a great pope. There'll be a great council of the church. These are all prophecies made by so many saints. If the world is to be converted, Christendom has to be rebuilt. Not a exact photocopy of, you know, Christendom of the Middle Ages. It's not going to be feudalism per se, right? are <laughs> not going back to that perhaps. Although some of the saints talk about a chastisement, a minor chastisement to come where we might go back to a more sort of um, uh, feudal sort of system in which men are back on horses. Um, you know, saints talk about that too, some of the prophecies. Um, but a creative imitation of Christendom of the Middle Ages, adapted to our times, but always the same eternal model. Christ is king, and he's acknowledged as such, and Christianity penetrates and permeates every aspect of society. Our first duty is to tear the revolution out of our hearts. How do we become truly counter-revolutionary? begin in us, tear the revolution in our hearts out. A lot of us have revolutionary tendencies. We're very revolutionary minded. On this earth, there are two cities perpetually at war and there is no possible neutrality for any individual. They can't sit on the fence acceptance of one necessarily means war against the other the revolution is evil it's a city of man it's the seed of destruction for nations families for souls as well as bodies The revolution capital r is to enthrone man in the place of god therefore you can't deal with it you can't compromise with it as an evil it has to be hated and fought with through the principles of the church Our second duty is to tear the revolution out of our minds. Get it out of your minds. We must restore in our own minds Catholic notions and principles in their integrity, and their wholeness. So number one, the notions of truth and error, of good and evil, and their adequate distinctions. We have to call truth, truth, and error, error. The notion of law and its necessary agreement to be just with the divine law. So if you have positive human law made by human legislatures and it's at odds with the eternal law of God and the natural law, which is our participation in the eternal law of God, if human positive laws are at odds with God's law, it's not a law. Well, you know, Roe v. Wade is the the law of the land. Roe v. Wade is not a law. An unjust law isn't a law. The notion of right and its necessary conformity to our ultimate end. Number four, the principle of authority, which is at the foundation of the natural and supernatural orders and direct contradiction to the revolutionary notion of freedom. So we accept authority, authority of God, the authority of the church. We obey authority. The notion of hierarchy, to love hierarchy the hierarchy of rights and of persons, of church and state, the church because it is spiritual, the church because it is the soul of society, is higher than the state, which is the body of society, the passing, the temporal. The notion of tradition as directly opposed to the revolutionary desire for novelties, right? Revolutionary is always like New things, new ideas, new learning, new theology, new this, new mass, new catechism, new this, new that. Our third duty is to make all possible efforts to tear the revolution out of the world around us. So you got to get it out of your mind, get it out of your family, and then get it out of the world around us. Doctrinal intolerance. Ooh, this sounds so much against modern thinking. The doctrine must be transmitted without diminution or compromise. You can't lessen the Catholic truth. You can't compromise Catholic truth. It is a disastrous condescension, con- condescendence to abandon doctrine for the sake of peace. Can't abandon catholic truth which is saving truth for the sake of well just keeping peace in the house is not a religion that you make lovable to them only your persons oh that's right so here it is right those who seek to compromise the faith you're not making religion more lovable to them but only your persons you're you're a nice person Okay, you don't insist on things. You're nice. And you fear ceasing to be loved, has ended by taking away your courage to tell the truth. That's a good line. How often we fall prey to that, right? We're supposed to say something, we have to say something. Our, our, our child, our grandchild get involved in all sorts of stuff, and we but I don't want to say anything, you know, I don't want to say anything, right? Because we fear not being loved. Virus, but you know, for, you know we, we fear not having human respect and so we it takes away the courage we have to tell the truth all right um, we end by saying things are in the hands of God so we'll end with this quotation let us imagine the worst let us grant that the flood of irreligion has all the strength it boasts of And that this strength can sweep us away. Seems like the revolution (laughs) is certainly sort of gaining ascendancy, doesn't it? Well, then, it will sweep us away. It is of no importance, provided that it does not sweep away the truth. We will be swept away, but we will leave the truth behind us. And those who were swept away before us left it. Either the world still has a future or it has not. If we are arriving at the end of time, we are building only for our eternity. But if still long centuries must unfold, by building for eternity, we are building also for our time. We still work to build up the kingdom. We still work to build the city of God. Whether confronted by the sword or by contempt, we must be the strong witnesses of the truth of God. Our testimony will survive. There are plants that grow invincibly under the hand of uh, the Heavenly Father. There where the seed is planted, a tree takes root. There where the martyr's bones lie, a church rises. Thus are formed the obstacles that divide and stop the floods." So quite a little message there of hope, but also a challenge to say the least. So um, that is our discussion for today uh, in regards to Christendom and revolution. Next week, we will look at Christ's social reign again, but looking at the teachings of the Father Dennis Fahey, uh, great priest back in the 20th century who was the great defender of Christ's kingship. So, very good. Um, thank you for uh, uh, being a part of this tonight, and we will get back together um, next Wednesday, and we'll look at Father Dennis Fahey, who is a tremendous uh, devotee of Christ the King. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Through the intercession of our Blessed Mother, Good Saint Joseph, your guardian angels of ancient saints, Benedictio repetentis, Patri sed filii, et spiritus sanceret super vos, semper. Amen. God bless you. Bye bye.